scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 62. Now let's hear the word of the Lord from Luke 22, starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Taylor. Well, good morning to each of you. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at the Brookside Campus, and we're so glad uh, that you are with us, whether this is your very first Sunday uh, with us uh, ever, or maybe this is your first Sunday being back uh, in the building uh, after having been primarily with us online, um, or whether you're just, you've just been here. This is your normal routine. We're so glad that you're here. And this morning we have something uh, special. We're trying to do more things because we have more kids with us during the services these days uh, to engage kids. So kids, if you didn't get one of these on your way in, it's a little popsicle stick with a picture of a rooster on it. Uh, maybe you can ask your mom and dad if it's, if it's too late for you to yet go grab one of those. I think they're kind of right back here in this end of the uh, center aisle. Um, but every time you are listening, when you're listening to this room, you hear me say denied or denial, um, those kind of deny words, you can raise and kind of wave your rooster, because we're going to be talking a lot about Peter denying Jesus in this story. So uh, if you didn't grab one of those, uh, do that, and, uh, and that's what these are for this morning. Well, I want to begin uh, by praying uh, for us this morning as we sort of get into this uh, and, and continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke um, in rediscovering the kingdom. So uh, let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you um, have given us your word. And I pray uh, that as we reflect uh, together on this passage that your spirit would be at work comforting, encouraging, challenging, correcting us as we look at this passage. We need that, Lord. 
And so we pray for it now. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, fear and self-preservation are powerful forces. Fear, self-preservation, they're powerful forces. And I've always loved uh, reading survival stories and and how people in the face of of these moments that self-preservation kicks in and they're able to survive in incredible circumstances. So one of the stories that gripped me early on, I was a high school student and I read about Captain Scott O'Grady, who in the mid-90s was flying an F-15 fighter jet over Bosnia, uh, a NATO mission during the conflict that was happening there. And his fighter plane was shot down. And he crashed in enemy territory after ejecting from the plane. And he had to spend a week evading capture with limited food and almost no water. And I just remember reading what he had to do to survive as he was hiding and and moving at night and and literally wringing uh, the sweat from his socks to drink and even at one point resorting to having to drink his own urine to stay alive before a dramatic rescue by the military. Uh, Another one that I read recently is uh, John Krakauer's classic, Into Thin Air, where Krakauer, who is an amazing writer, uh, but also a mountaineer, talks about his journey to Mount Everest and on his particular expedition ended up being one of the deadliest as a huge storm came in. And what he and others had to do to survive as they descended Everest in this incredible storm that took the lives of many that day. But perhaps no story of survival has gripped me more than that of Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston uh, was an adventurer who went out into the Utah wilderness by himself without telling anyone where he was going uh, or that he was going. And he uh, is, goes out into the wilderness and he tells his story in the book Between a Rock and a Hard Place and is later made into a movie, 127 Hours. Maybe you've read the book or, or seen the movie, you know the story. He goes out into the Utah wilderness and he falls into one of the many slot canyons that are there in the wilderness. And as he falls into the canyon, a a boulder rolls down after him and his arm is pinned between the boulder and the canyon wall and he is now stuck completely out of sight down inside of this canyon. And the realization begins to sink in pretty quickly. This is a bad situation. One, no one knows I'm gone. So no one's going to come looking for me. But two, even if someone does eventually realize we haven't seen Aaron in a while and thinks we should look for him, they're going to have no idea where to look. So as he's down there, the hours are ticking away, he comes to the conclusion that his only hope to survive in this moment is to amputate his own arm with a multi-tool. I mean, it's unthinkable. But that's what fear and the will to survive do. They can push us to unprecedented acts of, of heroism and courage. But fear, self-preservation, can also move us to do unthinkable acts of denial and cowardice as well. Which brings us to our text this morning. 
And we see Peter's denial of Jesus, this this move seemingly of of fear and self-preservation. Peter, whose name means rock, stumbles over himself in this story. And this is a fascinating story, and I ask the question, why is it included? Why does Luke include it? And actually, when you go back and look, we have four different gospel accounts, four different sort of uh, authors giving their unique perspective on Jesus' life, each with different emphases, different storytelling techniques, four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and so some of them contain uh, different stories, they're highlighting different things, but this story of Peter's denial of Jesus, it's in all four gospels. And whenever you have a story that shows up, an account that shows up in all four Gospels, you you have to stop and take notice because it means this is really important. This is central. This is crucial. This is something that no matter when you're telling the story of Jesus' life, you've got to tell this part. It's in all four. Why? That's what we want to try to unpack this morning. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to to grab one of the Pew Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22, or pull it up on your phone. Um, But I want you to follow along with me here in the text as we look at this passage. And really in this whole section of Luke's gospel, uh, kind of beginning uh, really right here with this moment all the way through to Jesus actually being crucified on the cross, Jesus is being revealed as the denied king as the denied king. Judas, right, he discovers him in the garden and betrays him with a kiss, uh, denied. The disciples who flee in that moment deny. The religious leaders who are arresting him and trying to deny him. The evil one who's seeking to destroy him denies him. But of all the denials that King Jesus faces in this moment, Peter's has to be the most painful. Because Peter, he was not just one of the 12, but he was part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, who were even closer to Jesus. This has got to be the hardest. And Luke brings us into this story. Last week, Pastor Tom was with us, and we looked at Jesus' prayer in the garden as he's preparing to go. He knows that the moment of his arrest, his trial, his execution is coming. Jesus is praying fervently there. If you didn't have a chance, if you weren't here last week, or you didn't have a chance to, to listen to that message from Tom last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. It's so, so powerful. But this moment picks up right at the end of that. Jesus comes to the disciples. He's telling them, you continue to pray so that you don't fall into testing and temptation and trial. And in that very moment, as Jesus is still speaking, Luke says, a crowd all of a sudden shows up in the garden. And Judas is at the lead. And Judas walks up to Jesus, greets him with a kiss. Jesus replies, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Comes to them. Then, a bunch of activity starts in that moment, right? There's this realization, oh, this this crowd is here to take Jesus. Chaos begins to break out in a kind of perhaps a a, a self-preservation motivated, fueled burst of courage. The disciples yell, should we strike with the sword? And before Jesus even has time to reply, one of them does and lobs off the ear of one of the, the servants of the high priest who is there in the crowd. And Jesus immediately says, enough, enough of this. And he heals the severed ear. 
And, and I just want to pause right here to note that Luke is so clear. He goes out of his way to show that even in this moment, even in Jesus' moment of, of trial, in this moment of chaos, I mean, there's few moments in Jesus' life that are going to be more chaotic than this, this, this moment of his arrest. Jesus is absolutely in control. He's absolutely in charge of everything. He commands the disciples. They stop. He doesn't get arrested until he finishes speaking. Jesus is still the sovereign king, even in this moment of his arrest and trial and execution. And then Luke moves us from the garden scene here now to the courtyard outside the high priest's house where Jesus is being abused and interrogated. And he tells us that Peter had followed at a distance. And this is where, you know, the the other gospels tell us that many of the disciples fled. Peter, he didn't run away, but he followed at a distance. And now he's trying to blend in in the courtyard around the fire, listening, watching, seeing what's going to happen. And and he's got to be wondering, right, what's going to happen this time? Because Jesus had been surrounded by hostile crowds in the past. This is not the first time this has happened, and yet Jesus in the past had always found a way to break through the crowd. Jesus had been interrogated by religious leaders in the past, and yet he had always, and we saw this, he had always had brilliant answers that silenced them. But Peter senses this this time feels different. Jesus isn't escaping the crowd. He isn't pushing through the crowd He's not answering the questions. He's remaining silent. There is something different. And the fear starts to rise. He's scared. The what ifs, the what might be's, the contingency plan. What, is this, what does this mean for me? Is, is this actually the end? Maybe is Jesus not who I thought he was? His thoughts are racing and racing and racing with these things, and then a voice breaks in. And his racing thoughts trip and stumble and fall to the ground. The voice of a young girl who makes a simple but damning observation. Verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. And in that self-preservation moment, without even thinking, without even knowing what he's doing, Peter, verse 57, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And it didn't register for Peter. Didn't, didn't click what had just happened. And, and, it, and it didn't click later on when it happened the next time. Verse 58 And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Peter still doesn't realize. It's still not coming together for him yet what's happening. And it doesn't even happen for him yet after the third time. Verse 59 And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter still doesn't get it yet. Until, until, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter 
And Peter remembered. Peter remembered. Jesus, somehow, in the arrangement of this courtyard, he's inside the house, he's being interrogated, he's being accused, he's being abused by these religious leaders, and yet he is aware, as the sovereign king, of what's happening in the courtyard. After that third denial, he turns and he looks and he makes eye contact with Peter from across the courtyard, and Peter remembers. And he just crumbles. He weeps bitterly. Tears of anguished regret. I, I don't know if this is objectively true, but I just have to imagine. I, I think that, that the emotion of regret has got to be one of the most agonizing emotions that we as human beings can experience. Because it's not just something that's happened to you, it's something that you've done to yourself, this decision that you wish you could have back. You would do anything to have back, but you can't take it back. It's done, and you were the one who brought it on. Regret. Peter, who had been so steadfast for so long, he crumbles and he leaves. And the question that this text then raises for us, that that I want to know, is how does Jesus... How does the denied king respond? How does he deal with disciples, with followers who fail, who falter, who deny? How does Jesus deal with those followers? And and you know, that's not just a question that rises out of Luke chapter 22. That is also a question that has echoed through the pages of Scripture from the moment that Adam and Eve denied God in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The question is, how does the Creator respond? How does He deal with those who deny, who falter, who fail? And the answer, both in the garden, in that Eden garden, as well as in the Judean courtyard here in Luke chapter 22, is the same. And that is that the king will always look for you. The king will always look for you. I encourage you to to write that down this morning. If you don't remember anything else or take anything else away from the sermon, I I, I hope that if you take one thing, it's that, that Jesus, the King, will always look for you. Even when you are denying him, even when you're actively denying him, Peter is standing there in the courtyard denying Jesus, even when you're denying him, he is still looking for you. That's what grabs me about this text more than anything else is that moment where Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Because you know when Peter is in the courtyard standing around that fire, sitting around that fire, warming himself, trying to blend in, trying to be noticed, and he starts being recognized, Jesus becomes so unreal to Peter in those moments. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said in moments of of temptation, God becomes so unreal to us. Peter Fear gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and in those moments, Jesus just shrinks away. Until you get to verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered. 
remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You know, as Peter was around that fire, being recognized, Jesus who had spoken a word and stilled the sea, Jesus who had healed the blind, Jesus who had raised the dead, that Jesus to Peter seems so far away, the Jesus that is being abused, interrogated, beaten inside of the high priest's house in that moment, like he, to Peter, he's like, this, maybe this guy's just a frail carpenter. Maybe this guy is just somebody who, who's gotten too close to the sun. He's gotten too close to Rome, to the religious authorities. Maybe this is all over. Jesus has become unreal to him until that moment when Jesus makes eye contact with him. Eye contact. And then there's this, this moment of realization who Jesus really is comes flooding back to Peter. You know, when we experience moments of shame and guilt, what's the hardest thing for us to do in those moments? I mean, you've had those moments. We've got to go apologize. You, you blew it. You've got to go tell someone sorry. You've got to say, I, I really made a big mistake here. The hardest thing in those moments is to make eye contact with someone. Right, what do we do in those moments? We look down, we look away. Like, I've got to tell you this thing. I'm so sorry. This happened. But even when we can't bear to look at him, he is looking for you. But how is he looking for us? How is he looking at us in those moments? Is he looking with anger? Is he looking with, with condemnation? With judgment? When Peter makes eye contact with Jesus. How is Jesus looking at him? Three things here. First, when he looks for you, the king looks for you in truth, with truthfulness. You see, Jesus is not surprised. Peter is surprised, but Jesus is not surprised by what happens in this moment. He predicted back all the way in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22, around the dinner table, Peter, you will tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I don't think Peter believed in that moment. I don't think he had a category for that even happening. But Jesus is not surprised here. He looks, he looks at Peter with truth, knowing that this was going to happen. He knows us too. When he looks at you, he looks in truth. For as surprised as we may be by our own failures, our own fault, I mean, how many times do you go, how could I have done that? How could I have reacted that way, said that, done that? As surprised as we are of our failures, our falterings, our denials, Jesus is never surprised. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We may be surprised by our own failings. We may be shocked by the failings of others. Jesus is never surprised because he looks at us in truth. He knows you better than you know you. And he's not surprised. Because here's the thing. I don't know if you have a rhythm of this. Maybe some of you have a practice of this that maybe a few times a week or maybe in a journal or uh, in the evening or the morning, you, you, maybe you practice a little discipline of confession where you, you pray and you, you say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. This is part of the rhythm of prayer. You know, I, 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 I did this. I, I yelled at my kids. I got angry at my spouse. I, I didn't deliver on what my boss told me I was supposed to and I lied about it, whatever it might be. You, you have this practice of confession in your prayers. 
But in those moments, do you realize that even in those spaces, whatever comes to your mind, you say, God, search, I often pray that prayer for someone, God, search me, know me, see if there's any anxious way, you know, see if there's anything in, in my heart. Whatever comes up in those moments that we know that we blew it in, it's just a fraction, right? Of anything we might have done in the last 24 hours, mixed motives, little slights, things that we don't even remember that we did. So, so we only know in part, but Jesus, he knows it all perfectly. He looks at us in truthfulness. He sees the worst of it much more than we do. I mean, you may have this journey too, if you've been a Christian for a while, where there were things in your life at the beginning, there was some big stuff that Jesus needed to work on and, and clean up and, and heal in your life. And the longer you go on, you're like, man, I, I didn't even know I had this issue. We only see parts of it. I think that's a gift of grace. We would just crumple, I think, if we saw all of it. But he, he knows it fully in truth. We can't hide from the king. Which would be terrifying if it weren't for the next two things we're going to see here. For as C.S. Lewis said, speaking of his conversion experience, he, he writes this, take a look at this. He says, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I was then, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. If Jesus is only looking at us just in raw truth, it's going to feel like we are mice and he is the cat. But friends, he doesn't just look in truth. He also, when the king looks at you, he looks in gentleness. That's the next thing here. The second thing. He looks with gentleness. With gentleness. Because how does Jesus respond to, engage with, what is his heart for people who are burdened, weary, heavy laden sinners? We get the answer in Matthew eleven twenty eight. If you've been around Christ's community for more than, more than like 10 minutes, you've probably heard this verse at some point. It's such a key verse for us as a church. But Jesus says, describes himself, who he is towards weak, heavy, burdened sinners as one who is gentle and humble in heart, gentle and lowly in heart. This is how Jesus responds to sinners to people who are weak, to people who are, who are faltering, to people who, who find themselves in places where they are actually denying him. When those, if you've ever been there and you feel the pressure of faltering, you feel the weakness, you feel the assaults of, of what the, the Bible uses as these categories, the threefold category of the world, the flesh, and, and the evil one, that there are actually categories of pressure from the world that are pushing on us. There's, there's our, own, our own patterns of habits of sinfulness as well as, you know, the Bible contends that there's actually a supernatural realm that it actually actually has influenced us. All of those things, when you feel that and you begin to falter and fail, Jesus responds to you with gentleness. He is gentle. Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms in the whole Bible. And it's, it's a psalm of, of forgiveness and hope and expression of God's love for us. But I love verses 13 and 14. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? For he knows our frame. He knows what we are made of. He remembers that we are dust. He's gentle with us. Because he, kn- he knows what we're made of. He knows that we are dirt creatures, that we're dust. So he's gentle with us. 
But, but this goes even further, because not only does Jesus have a knowledge by description as Almighty God that we are creatures made of dust, for he's made us out of the ground, but Jesus also has knowledge by acquaintance because he himself is not only truly and fully God, but he has come to earth as truly and fully human. This is the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation that God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has become truly and fully human. He doesn't just have knowledge by description that, hey, I made these creatures out of dust. I know they're made of dust. But he has actually become a dirt creature himself and walked and lived among us. I'm using these categories of knowledge by description, knowledge by acquaintance. What do I mean by that? Well, I have knowledge by description of what it's like to be in a position of having to make the decision to amputate your own arm. I, I know Aaron Ralston's stories. I've watched the movie. Aaron Ralston has knowledge by acquaintance of what it is to be in that position. He, he didn't just read about it in a book like I did. He lived it. Friends, Jesus does not just have knowledge by description of what it is to be a frail, weak human being. He has lived that experience. He knows what it is to be hungry, to be tired, to be angry. Hebrews chapter verse 14. Take a look at this. It says, For we have a high, do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Speaking of Jesus, who has been tempted and tried, tested in every way that we have, and yet without sin. That, that, that without sin piece is so key. And what it means, I think sometimes my mind, maybe your mind jumps to you, so he, he went through all this stuff where I failed and he didn't fail, so now he's going to look on me with condemnation. No. He was able to be the one who passed every test because if he had failed, there would be no hope for us. But because he succeeded where we failed, he's able to look with, on compassion, but he's also then able to have the ability to rescue us because he didn't fail. He didn't falter. And he is helping us and he's praying for us. Back in, in verse 31 in, in Luke, you have this moment where in Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus actually, in the moment that he's predicting that Peter is going to fail, he says, I'm going to pray for you. He says, Simon, Simon, that's another name for Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again and strength, turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Peter is being prayed for by Jesus, that his faith wouldn't fail, even though Jesus knows, he looks and he knows that Peter is going to fail, but he's praying for him. And he hints at that restoration that when, when you turn, strengthen your brothers also. So Jesus not only treats you with gentleness, but he, he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. Now, you might say, but Bill, I mean, that's great. This is kind of a historical account of, of Jesus and Peter here. That's, that's great for Peter, but is he doing that for me? Yes, he is. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Speaking of Jesus, who is the one who condemns? Paul asked this rhetorical question at the end of Romans chapter 8. Is there anyone left to condemn you? He started off 
Romans chapter 8 by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation. Who is there? Who's the one who condemns? It's not Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God who what? Intercedes, who prays for us. Paul is speaking there of all the church that Jesus, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, having ascended, is praying for you right now. He's praying for me. He's interceding for us. And he does not look on us with condemnation because he has given himself for us. He knows our weakness. And he treats us with gentleness. He prays for us. But that doesn't just make the denial, it doesn't just make the failings, it doesn't just make the the rebellions against him just magically disappear. Yes, he treats us with gentleness, but they're, they're still there. They still need to be dealt with, which is why when the king looks for us, he also looks with forgiveness. Because how does this end? It ends with Peter weeping bitterly. And, and I've wondered, what do, we, what do we make of the fact that Peter just breaks down and cries? Are we supposed to see this as pathetic like Peter? Come on, like Jesus said this was going to happen. This is this just a sad, pathetic moment for Peter here. What are we supposed to make of Peter's tears? Why does Luke make such a point to say that he wept bitterly? I think to answer that question, what you have to do is go back through Luke's gospel and look at where do people cry? Where do people weep in Jesus' presence? And what happens when they do? Because it happens multiple times in Luke's gospel. And I, I think we will misunderstand what's happening here if we don't look at all of those other ones. So one of the first moments that this happens is in Luke chapter 7, verse 13. A widow is weeping because her son has died. A widow is weeping because her son has died. Do you get that? She, she's, already, she's a widow, so she, she's already lost her husband, and now her son has died too. And she's weeping, weeping, weeping bitterly. Jesus encounters this funeral processional through the streets, and he stops, and he looks at this widow, this widow who's weeping because she's lost her son, and he looks at her and he says, do not weep which would be like the most unthinkable, insensitive thing to do to someone who's lost their husband and their son, unless you're about to do what Jesus is about to do, which is to take that young man by the hand and raise him from the dead, which is exactly what he does. Later on, Luke chapter 7. This is now verse 38. Jesus is at the house of kind of a self-righteous religious leader. He's eating dinner. And a woman who's only named as a sinner comes in, and what does she do? She starts weeping, weeping at Jesus' feet, and she starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. She's got weeping and resurrection, weeping and forgiveness. And, and later on, this is the, the story where Jesus, the disciples and the people gather around, they're so upset that this is happening. How, you know, don't you know who she is and what she's done? And is it the one who's been forgiven much loves much? So we've seen we- weeping and resurrection. We've seen weeping and forgiveness. Now, a- another moment later on happens. This is Luke 8.52. And Jesus comes to the home of some parents 
and their daughter has just died. And this is a tough one too because he stopped on the way to heal a woman who didn't have a life-threatening thing going on and, and they're kind of the thought is, Jesus, if you would have just hurried up and gotten here, you could have healed her before she's dead, but now she's dead and it's too late. So there's like anger, there's hostility at Jesus when he shows up. And they're weeping. The parents are weeping. And Jesus, again, says to them, do not weep. Which, again, would be the most unthinkable, insensitive thing you could possibly say to parents who have just lost a child unless you're about to take that little girl by the hand and say, child, rise and bring her back from the dead, which is exactly what Jesus does. And friends, this all fits a pattern that Jesus started off way back in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, where he says, blessed are those who weep, for they shall laugh. See, in the gospel of Luke, when people weep, there's, it's followed by forgiveness and resurrection. Peter's tears, his weeping in this moment are signaling to us, we have been paying attention, that this is going to, that coming on the heels of this is going to be new life and forgiveness. New life and forgiveness. And friends, this is so key. Jesus will not deny your tears. He's looking for you. He's looking for you even when you're not looking for him. Even when the last thing you want to do is be found by him. He is always looking for you. This is a great gift for us. And we've been given the gift of a community of the local church to be found in. Which is why I want us to hear this morning as we, as we wrap up here. Jesus' charge to Peter as his charge to us. He says to Peter, when you've been restored, turn and strengthen your brothers and sisters. And I want us to hear that as, as his cry, his charge to us today. Would we turn and strengthen one another? Because, friends, it's, if you're starting to see the news articles, right, this is a year. This time last year, our lives changed dramatically. And reflecting on what all of us have been through this year, we have all been through a lot this year. All of us have experienced all kinds of anxiety and uncertainty. We've made decisions we never would have made. We, we probably posted things or said things or thought things that we never would have thought in the stress and the pressure of this pandemic over the last year. We've all been through a lot. And we need one another to turn and strengthen and encourage one another. We need, yes, personal repentance. We need the Spirit coming and bringing new life in our lives. But then we need to leverage that grace and forgiveness to encourage one another. To remind one another of how the King sees us in truth and in gentleness and in forgiveness. Because the King is looking for you. Always. The only question is, will you look for him? When you do, when you meet his gaze, you will find truth and gentleness and forgiveness. Always. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have, uh, that you are a God who is not content to leave us alone even when we decided we didn't want anything to do with you. But that you were the good shepherd who left the 99 sheep behind to come and find the one lost one. That you sent Jesus, your only son, 
to become a human while remaining fully God to come and find me, to come and find each one who you have called by name. We pray that we would look for your gaze and find that truth and gentleness and wholeness and forgiveness that we long for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.